1: So, Pat Godwin, you uh, grew up in Pennsylvania. I did. You end up, uh, you go to school, you're an athletic, you get into theater, and that takes you out to L.A. for uh-huh. the first time. First time, yeah.
0: So, uh, you then move uh, away from L.A. I go you, back to Dallas, Pennsylvania, where I start playing the
1: guitar. And then you head back to L.A. to be a singer-songwriter. Exactly. And yeah. that didn't necessarily pan out the way you would wanted it.
0: No, went out there with my manager at the time who was from uh, the northeastern Pennsylvania area, and we tried to make a go of it, doing showcases musically and stuff. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, it just was rough. It was really rough.
1: Now, And then there was a third time you went out there.
0: Yeah, that was about the age of 39, 40, and I went back as a seasoned uh, road warrior headliner comedian. Okay, so I think
1: where we last uh, left off, you had... Um Kind of uh, stopped doing uh radio every day.
0: Yep and you became a full road comedian. I stopped doing Stern, I stopped I of course was fired from WMMR, we all were in about ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. And that's when I truly went out on the road. Went down to the south, worked for the comedy zone and worked every night. Where were you based out of? Uh, you know, I was based out of Pennsylvania until I met Kim at a gig in Florida. Kim was the, the, the woman I was with for seven years. I met her at a, a show in Sanibel. And then we ended up just cohabitating immediately. And uh, I, 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 I took all my stuff down to her place in Miami. And we stayed in the carriage house on the on the off the main property. <laughs> Is that right? The carriage house was was also a mansion.
1: Okay, so she was sort of
0: she came from wealthy a wealthy family or wealthy. Whoa, <laughs> you can't imagine this kind of wealth. Their move. Their house has been used in many movies, like The Specialist, of course, Wild Things. That pool scene—that was their pool. That was their pool. That was their pool. That was the pool I swam in. I was there for that scene. Uh, that was right. Wild around things 90, were ninety-three, ninety-four.
1: Is yeah. it uh, Nev Campbell? Nev and... Campbell
0: and uh, Denise Richards. Yeah,
1: they don't they make out? Yeah. Oh boy,
0: did they ever! Now, were you there when? They... Yes, I was. It was. Are you kidding me? It was a closed set. Uh, <laughs> it was just crew and Kim and I. <laughs> How wild! It was pretty wild. It was very, it was very non-sexy. It was cold. Uh The girl, the, yeah, I the, bet the, the women, the women were very aggravated. Uh, the, I bet, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was, it was fun. Kim, Kim had worked on that movie. Uh She was uh, somebody's assistant, and her sister was Bill Murray's assistant uh on that particular movie itself. So yeah, that's a fun movie. It man. is a fun movie. It's a cool yeah, flick. yeah, yeah. It doesn't doesn't get its credit, its due. Yeah. Did you meet Murray? Yeah. Well, at the cast party, uh, Kim's sister, uh, Jamie, had says, you know, you, you said you really got to come to the cast party. Bill may show up. Bill Murray may show up. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, jeez. And so I go to the cast party. It was at Senor Frog's, uh, a Mexican place on Collins uh, Collins Avenue in Miami. And it's Matt Dillon is there and Kevin Bacon is there. They're kind of fun and they're yeah. dancing. And Bill Murray isn't there. But all the girls, everybody's uh, the dates and, 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 and all the people that worked in the movie, the women that worked in the movie, were dancing. I remember this. They were dancing. On the tables. And it was kind of thrilling. It could have been the Macarena that we talk about on our show all the time. (laughs) Because it was around that time. Yeah. And then Jamie, uh, Kim's sister, my girlfriend's sister, brought, uh, uh, I could sense there was a presence next to me. Mm -hmm. She brought Bill Murray to meet me. Oh, uh, wow. So I'm just watching the girls. I'm bored. but I'm looking at my girlfriend who's hot. And I'm kind of, that's kind of fun to watch her dance. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because she was gorgeous, still is. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, Jamie goes, I'd like you to meet somebody. And... uh, this is Bill Murray, and then he just gave me that look like, look, like, of course I'm Bill Murray. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just gave me that look yeah, like that yeah. without saying anything, realizing here's a, you know, I said, well, Bill, Bell, it's a pleasure to meet you. And he just looks up at all the girls dancing. And he goes, not bad, just watching girls dance for all." while, huh? I said, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's my girlfriend there. And he goes... Nice, nice. (laughs) Then he says, uh, he goes, let's get a drink. And uh, there was an ice sculpture that had Jägermeister coming down. Oh, sure. Like in a slide. (laughs) Bill Murray goes over, doesn't even get a glass. He puts his mouth under the slide (laughs) and just gulps Jägermeister. (laughs) It was hilarious. I went, well, this is going to be one of those nights. Yeah. I did the same. He did it again. And uh, the night started. All right. (laughs) It was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I ended up spending a few hours with him. A few or?
0: hours. Well, this is at the time when he was uh, kind of flirting with the um, his makeup lady, who ended up becoming his second or third wife. So he's still married, yet this woman who is kind of, I can tell he has a connection to, uh, is hanging around us. So So Kim, her and Bill... Uh, and, and another couple uh, who I forget what, what their names were. We just kind of uh, waltzed down Miami Miami Beach area on Ocean Drive down to a place called Club Deuces, which was a dive bar. Bill said, can you take me to like a bar that I would enjoy? I said, yes. Oh, cool. So we walked down to this place called Club Deuces. And Bill Murray, on the way down, I, he was doing something really weird that I just could I He was talking to himself. He wasn't talking to me. We weren't, and the girls were all chatting with with each other. But Bill was talking to himself for blocks. And then I thought, I said, you know, Bill, you're really, uh, you're talking to yourself. You know, you realize people are just going to think you're crazy. He goes, yeah, I do that on purpose. So it appears like I'm having a conversation. So we're not stopped every five minutes. (laughs) And I went, that's genius. He goes, I know. But I thought, God, he isn't talking to me. He's ta- he was talking to himself. Then once we got into the confines and the safety of Club Deuce, who no one could care. They didn't even notice. You know, yeah. It was Bill Murray, and they had a wonderful jukebox. And we, you do a tremendous Tom Waits impression. I'm a huge Tom Waits fan. So was Bill Murray. Yeah. And they had. T- I said, they have Tom Waits in the jukebox. And Bill <laughs> Murray goes, oh, my God. And we played pretty much everything from Rain Dogs and all the really cool Waits albums that we liked. Yeah, he liked to play pool. I'm not very good at it, but I tried. Yeah, and that was that was the night. It was a blast. Oh, how cool, man! Yeah,
1: you know he's a giant John Prine fan. Yes, a giant John Prine. I had no idea. For whatever reason, it didn't occur to me
0: that he would listen to uh, all kinds of music. You well, know, Hunter Thompson had turned him onto John Prine because Bill Murray was in a funk after a breakup. And he goes, you need uh, you need some Prine in your life to put that smile back on your face. Yes. And so he, he had Bill Murray listen to a bunch of John Prine. Yes, I had heard an interview where he said that. Yeah, and finally one song, uh, Somebody Goes to Mars was the name of the song. I forget the name of the actual song. Bill Murray said, I finally laughed. He goes, I, and if he, crack, he cracked that de- deep depression he was in from a breakup. Yeah. He was listening to a bunch of stuff and just not into it until that song came on. Man. Lulu Goes to Mars, I think is the name of it. I may be wrong. And it, he said it cracked him. Yeah. And I understood exactly what he meant. Because sometimes when you're in a funk like that from a breakup, music isn't even enjoyable. And then there's that one moment in art, whether it be music or a movie, where you finally you find yourself laughing. Yes. And you go, oh. It, it's amazing. It, it broke.
1: Because sometimes music and art can be really painful during
0: those times. They can. You don't want to hear anything. No, it doesn't, nothing makes any sense. You, right. Sometimes you just want to turn everything off in the car or be at home and mope. And not, even the movies you enjoy or something you think you're going to enjoy, you don't. You're like, oh, yeah. yeah. And then there, there'll be one piece of art that'll just break you. And then, then finally, your your world opens up again during those up and down times. You know. Is there
1: anything like that you can remember specifically?
0: I I remember specifically not enjoying music, which I do, which is like my gateway into into this world and comedy and and life has been music. So when I'm not enjoying it, I know there's something deeply wrong. Right? Do uh, so, so you remember a particular song that broke you out of that? I uh, know I know I know for, I know for a, fa- a fact that I can go back to certain Beatle records and re enjoy them, uh, and that will sometimes bring me out of a funk. And when side two of Abbey Road doesn't make me smile, I uh, I go oh. <laughs> I'm in trouble, you know. They're like old friends, aren't they? Yes. But I listen to a lot of new, uh, new music, though. And so uh, my old friends, uh, I get teased for enjoying the Beatles or Steely Dan or Elton John uh, on the show a lot, too, for the Beatles. But the truth is, I'm really a new music fan. And I play so much of my own music that I, I enjoy my own music. I enjoy listening to mixes of my own music and uh, obsessing about my own music. So I find when I'm not enjoying other people's music as much, ew, I know I'm in trouble. Do you feel like your music is ever done? No. I mean, in regards to the recording of it? Yep. No, I mean, do you get to a point where you go, okay, that is finished? Nope. You never feel like that. You merely have to finish it sometime. That's why there are deadlines. <laughs> Alan and I would still be in there if Tom weren't going, you guys really have to finish by next Thursday. Because <laughs> Alan and I are so anal you know, and so obsessed. Do you hear that click in verse three of the ukulele? Can we soften that click, Pat? There are clicks all the way. And He goes, "I hear the click," and then we'll come back. Or there'll be little things in the mix. You know, Alan, I listened to uh, I listened to a certain song uh, in seven different formats, and then the fifth format, I think you need to boost the voice a little bit. You know, it'll be things like that. You never are done when it's your own stuff. You're never done.
1: And you nailed it. It is. It's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? It's fun yeah. Yeah. to analyze your own work. And uh, when you can still get a kick out of your own work, when I when I can do a bit on stage that still would make kind of makes me laugh, yeah. Oh, what a thrill that is! Absolutely, it's something that you've done, and so a song that you're playing that you've played fifteen hundred times, you still enjoy playing it. I, I love
0: that. That's yeah. And not only the playing of it, I actually truly enjoy the recording process, uh, the studio things, because you can hear your music fleshed out by other people. You're, even though it's funny music and it burns quickly on the ear, it's not like regular music. These things, comedy songs burn quick. But the ones that are produced well, I can really truly listen to them over again and enjoy them from a, an artistry point of view. So when you say they burn quick, it's uh,
1: four or five listens and you can't... you. The listener doesn't necessarily want to go back to it like they would a straight song.
0: Yeah, because the lyrics are not ambiguous; they are literal. Uh, yeah. Every every word is in its place, and uh, those kind of songs burn quickly. You know, a uh, Johnny Cash. There's a lot of Johnny Cash songs like that. You know, a boy named Sue. You can't really over you know listen to that a bunch of times. It's really a one one to three listens kind of a song. Uh, it's very literal. Every song, every lyric is in its place. It's funny. Mm-hmm. It's clever, and those things burn quickly. Yeah. That's why when Alan and I, we really wanted to do this uh, this new album as a complete production with no live stuff, because the live stuff really burns quick. I cannot listen to live versions and nitpick them and make them great or add stuff to them. It just uh, annoys the hell out of me. Do you think it frustrates you because you know there's nothing you
1: can do about the performance? Because it happened and it was recorded? And Yeah,
0: and, and I'm not really a huge fan of the sweetening. Tom is a big fan of sweetening. And when it comes to sweetening any of my songs, I've always erred on the side of caution and not put too much stuff on it. I, I like that. You know, we, we sweeten stuff on the show and certain things are phenomenal. Uh, geez, Beer Run has been sweetened. There's a bass and a little bit of drums added to that.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah when, we, when yeah, uh, it calls a sweetening, yeah. Right, right. When Todd Snyder was in
0: here yes. in the studio...
1: Yeah. Uh, all those instruments weren't being played, but they were eventually added. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. The, the one thing that Tom and I did to to my Legend of John Fox song, which is probably my, one of my favorite moments from the show, because I really surprised those guys with that one. We had his singers and a tiny band to a little bit of piano. And it thrills me. There are certain things that are just wonderful with a little bit of augmentation. Yeah, Live things, you know? Yeah. So that one was a home run with, with what Tom and I did.
1: Cool. Before we explore the new album more, I want to talk about your road days. Yeah. Um, you're a working comedian. Did you start as a... a uh, so, you know, the traditional American stand-up show is a host, a feature, which would then do uh, 25, 30 minutes, and then the headliner, who Ooh. is the main event essentially, does an hour or so. Yeah. Uh, did you start off as a feature or did you start off as a headliner on
0: the road? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, when you don't want to do a job, like say your mom wants you to wash the dishes, <laughs> well, you learn how to break a few good ones and get out of that job. I did not want to be an MC. I'm not good at it. I'm, I don't remember names. I'm yep. not a cheerleader. I am self-obsessed. I want to do my thing. Right. And so I very early on, you know, I was not a good MC on purpose. Okay. Because I, I wanted them to. I wanted someone not to be able to follow me and have the owner, club owner, go, All right, we're just going to close you then if that's the way you're going to be. Yeah, you know if you're going to be that good or have that much presence or be that bad at emceeing, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. And I was. And those guys are still around. I'm. I, I'm cons- uh, being an emcee. There's such an art to being an emcee, and it I is, am not that guy. I agree. It's it's the hardest. I think it's. I think it's the the it, part of the show that you get the paid the most. And you know, in England, uh, those guys are paid the most. Right. And there's one guy in Vegas that ran the Comedy Stop that would have the opener be one of the strongest elements of the show. Yeah. 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 Yeah,
1: it's amazing. Yeah, Being I know. MC, but usually, it's where guys start. <laughs> I know. And so, and the audience
0: gets that kind of oh, jeez, what kind of show <laughs> right. is? It? It, we're all like that in the beginning, right? My first emceeing job. Now, I told you before that Todd Glass had got me started, and Todd Glass also got me my first paying gig at the 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 Comedy Cabana in Wildwood, and I'm emceeing. Uh, Todd is in the feature spot, and the brilliant prop guy, uh, Michael Baldwin, they call him the legendary Wid. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't know who this is because he is just, he's a character. He's been homeless at times. <laughs> he has all of his stuff in storage in various places, all of his props. People have to drive him to gigs. So that's why he doesn't have carrot tops in, in, in cachet, name-wise. But he is the real deal. He's hilarious. Okay. So it's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-week gig. I'm getting paid really good money to MC Todd Glass and the, the legendary Wid, who's a Philadelphia fixture, and we're all buds. And we uh, we all we, we get down there to Wildwood. And our first show, they have a lot of shows. Like there's two shows a night. And the very first the, the very first night, and it's every night. And this is in June, this is June, my first paying gig. Uh, it's 13 people, and I am not handling a crowd that well yet and i'm going out into the crowd i'm doing crowd work where i haven't even learned how to talk to people yet i have my i have my little funny songs but right. i've got no act and boy am i reaching because my little songs aren't working so i think i've seen other people go out in the crowd i'll go out in the crowd they're staring at me <laughs> and uh, and then uh, todd does so much better and Wid kills it And i'm going well if Wid can kill it in front of 13 people the second show i'm going to be better and i'm worse the second show <laughs> and uh the woman uh, the woman that ran it, uh, I forget her name, but uh, she put a note under And I went down with my girlfriend. We we're going to have two weeks of uh, just a wonderful time yeah, at, down on the beach. And there's a note under my door. Please come see me. <laughs> and it's the owner, lady, legendary owner of the Comedy Cabana in, in Wildwood. Please come see me. Oh, jeez. That doesn't seem good. <laughs> so I marched myself down there. And I, I and knock on the door there. She's sitting there. Let's come in. Um, I'm going to pay you. <laughs> Uh, but I don't need you to be doing any more of the shows. Uh, uh, you're not ready for comedy. You you never will be ready for comedy. <laughs> and I'm I'm like oh my gosh, I'm getting fired. My first gig, I'm getting fired. <laughs> she hands me a check for the whole two weeks. Wow. And says, I wish you the best in another line of work. But you are not ready for my room, or quite frankly, any room. Okay. You're just terrible. <laughs> And I, I I do a Jackie Gleason, yeah. yeah. And I, and I go back to my girlfriend who's still asleep. I wake her up. Her name was Kim. Mm -hmm. I, I wake her up. I said, "You're not gonna believe this. I'm fired. We can't (laughs) even." And it's our vacation. She took off work. Yeah, she was a bartender and going to the University of Penn at Smoky Joe's. She took two weeks off, and we're supposed to use the money I was making, which I now have. I said, "Well, I got paid for the full two weeks." Right. Oh, it was humiliating. My first gig ever. What did uh, Todd say? Who got you the gig? Jeez, uh, Todd was just mortified. Uh, and he felt really bad for me because he had seen me do some open mic things where I was effective with the crowd. Yeah, but I still hadn't learned. You know, there's an art to doing ten people, fifteen people. Yes. and you learn that by by bombing right, and, and by exactly. making mistakes all over the country. Right. And jeez, uh, for the next uh, the next ten years, I made mistakes all over the country and learned so much uh, better how to do the nine people, ten people thing. Yeah, you know, and make it personal and fun. Now, if you gave me nine ten people and the owner still wanted us to do a show. Uh, I know how to pull that off now, but I did not know that the first week of right. performing. Yeah. And like
1: you said, the only way to learn is to be oh. be
0: terrible at it. Yeah, Todd was very very. He was still in Philadelphia then. He hadn't left for L A uh, yet. And he uh, he just says, will you we need to work more." So he and I would do anything. Yeah, he would grab me, and he and I would do bar mitzvahs, sweet sixteen parties, outdoor pool parties, the worst gigs in the world. He would grab me to do, so I got a little more seasoned. Yeah, good. And then I became that music guy in Philadelphia. You know, I okay. became the, I became the guy and got that so, radio gig, and uh, pretty quickly, did you move on to the feature slot? Do you know I never did the feature spot. Oh, I, okay, I, I okay. went. I went from being a bad MC with a lot of energy and presence to the headlining spot with no material. And when I when I was forced to do 45 without 45 minutes of actual material, uh, boy, I learned real, real, real quick how to talk to people and how to use my innate kind of Irish wit to my advantage and to open up a bit and take some chances. Yeah. And without any material, I developed a a crowd work kind of organic way to get to music, which really was just the fact that I just didn't have 45 minutes. I had an organic way to get to the five or six funny songs I had because is the uh, the bridge between them was was long because I hadn't I didn't have I would be sweating looking at my watch going okay buddy you got ten minutes yeah, yeah. but I would never kept my closing bit. To the end, because I would always get nervous and throw it in five minutes in. So at the end, I was always like, "Oh, what do I do now?" <laughs> my first five years of comedy, I I would always panic and throw the closer in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you did that ever. Wh- I have done that. Wiser people, oh no, no, I know to, to end end strong. I'll save my Springsteen bit. Let's right. say if I'm doing Springsteen five minutes in, you know I'm in trouble.
1: <laughs> the couple times that uh, there have also been a couple times where I've been in the middle of my closer and i get the stretch sign from oh. the manager or somebody and uh I, 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 there's no way i can just bail out of the closer at that point yeah so i have to do it and then go what am i going to do until they give me the light yeah so then it's yeah then it's uh, dig- digging deep into the pockets for <laughs> op bits i was th- doing at open mic that i could never get to work and that's how you get- <laughs> <laughs> so you know what i ended up doing what? and i don't know if you ever i ended up uh really just sort of thanking the audience just going you know what <laughs> this has been
0: this is just been how about our troops?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It's like, yeah, this has been a terrific time. I can't thank you guys enough.
0: We'll see you again.
1: Like I just try to
0: make it very, like, like sort like, of sentimental. Like a book report we have in high school where we we'll repeat the same. And he was very, 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 very brave.
1: <laughs> you remember when it had to be a thousand words, yes, and you're yeah. in the third grade? <laughs> Good. So how many years would you say that you have, well... Um, you were, you were working clubs everywhere yeah. eventually mm-hmm. and uh, headlining and
0: having fun, enjoying it? No. I enjoyed the show and I enjoyed that moment of accomplishment at the very end of the show when you went, oh man, I, no better feeling in the world when you pull that little trick off when you, you make an audience laugh consistently for, that, yes. for the period of time you were booked for. Uh, but boy, there was nothing about the pre the pre thing I enjoyed or anything. I w- I, w- I was I'd have to say I was one of the more miserable people doing it. It, it. it would have to take a really funny buddy. If you and I traveled together, I would enjoy myself. Myself and Mike Stankwitz, he made me laugh the whole time, and we'd get out and run a little bit, and it would make the week, you know. But if I was with someone I didn't like, which was very often, there'd be so. oh. You know, the guy, he, I, I normally headline, you know. Oh, and when yeah. someone would say that to me, I would go, "Just funny, I normally MC. I, don't know what's, <laughs> I wonder what's wrong with this week. And then the guy would never get it. I could mention 15 people that I would just consider nemesis because I, whenever I would see them on the road, I'd go, oh. And they would, they would actually hear me groan. I was on a cruise ship when I saw a guy. I won't mention his name, but he's one of the cowboy acts. There's three of them. You can probably figure it out. And... and uh, and I worked with him and I was, oh, he, I let him know I was miserable because okay. he'd have me in his room listening to songs. Oh, geez. He was so full of himself. <laughs> and I'd heard he was working on the ships and on the ships, you didn't really know who you were always paired with somebody else on carnival or, uh, or the other ships, uh, princess and stuff. But you know, I never really asked, so who am I working with? You just show, you know, let it be a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember being at the airport <laughs> uh, down, down in Galveston, ready to fly somewhere else. And this guy had walked in who I just hated. <laughs> And he walked up to me, and I just went, "Oh, not you!" <laughs> and he never, he never got, he never realized I was serious because then I realized it, said it out loud, and I toned back my dickiness. And I, and I went, "Hey, how you doing?" But then I go, "Oh, I'm never gonna make this week. <laughs> yeah. You want to go walk? You want to go for a walk? Did you, did you? Well, how come you're not watching me this week? <laughs> how come I'm not watching you this week? This person would be so upset that I wasn't watching his set. I didn't have the heart to tell him. I hate your act.'" <laughs> <laughs> and then there are other people that are so more – more. there are more people that are just such joys to work with. I mean, I could be in a car and drive 12 hours to Omaha and laugh the whole way and yes. lose my voice before showtime. Yeah. with, with yes. I could I could name 30 people, Mike Stank was being one of them.
1: Yeah. You know? oh, we may have mentioned this before. That's one of the best things about being a stand-up comedian is you literally hang out with the funniest people on the planet. Oh, you absolutely <laughs> do.
0: The quirkiest, the the, the, the weirdest, yes. the sweetest, right. the most generous. Right. And the stingiest—it's just it, you are never bored uh, working no. comedy. Everyone's a character. Yes, you yeah. know the <laughs> the over drinking, the under drinking, the under-drinking, <laughs> the, uh, the overeating. You know, it just—it's it, just amazing. There are some people that are able to to do that road to life to their advantage. I was never one of them. The guys who you know, like Jesus, Drew Carey, the comedian, was notorious for cooking in his room when he was a feature. That set on the Tonight Show is what was really made him. He was really a, a hard-working road guy. Uh, and then he got managed by Messina, and uh, Messina opened up a bunch of doors for him. But he was he was an Ohio comedian, right. cooking, in, cooking in his room. Yeah, you know.
1: And we and uh, Drew Carey ended up doing that Tonight Show, which is stellar. You, yeah, you have
0: to watch that. It's absolutely brilliant. That yes, set. And
1: yeah. uh, but that's what he had. That was the set. And uh, so and he got so many bookings off of that. But he only had that set. Yeah. And he said he really learned to be a comedian. After being so successful on the Tonight Show and having to have an hour,
0: yeah. going out on the road, and uh, he honed that seven minutes that he carved out of only a thirty-minute block. He was really just featuring back then, yeah. But he went out to L.A. and Messina had him do seven minutes. That seven minutes that you see on the Tonight Show, yeah, everywhere, bo- and then until they finally had it down. And boy, did he have it down. He sure did. Yeah, it's it's as funny a seven-minute
1: set as I've it ever really seen. is.
0: It really is. And Carson
1: was blown away. Calls yeah. him over. Yeah, uh, which was the. Kiss of the of, yeah. of, of the gods at that yeah, time, yeah. And uh, didn't, doesn't Carson say, "Man, you're funny"? And uh, Drew looks at him and goes, "Yes, yeah, so are you." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, boy, you can't beat having a comeback like that. I, I would have been speechless. Yeah, I know. <laughs> People like that or when you I I get a little intimidated uh, with people that I really, really admire. Carson being one of them. And when you get in a situation, I tend to get tongue tied or say something very stupid. (laughs) I said something stupid to Gary Shandling once. and I think I've told you this before, but you may enjoy it again. But we did a show at the Comedy and Magic Club. It was their birthday show. And it had 12 comedians on it. And Mike Lacey, the owner, asked me to be one of them. And I, I was, oh, I'm so very, very proud. Yeah. It's a legendary club. Yep, yeah, legendary club. And I walk into the green room, and it's Seinfeld, Leno, a couple of writers from the, the Tonight Show at that time with Leno. I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. And here I am with my little guitar. I feel like such a, <laughs> you know, being a, being a guitar act is just, it's really difficult at times when you walk into a room like that. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you really cool the room down. <laughs> and Gary Shandley, I noticed, was off by himself in the office with Dana. Uh, the manager, uh, the sweet manager of that club. And, uh, and, he, and Mike Lacey comes in and goes, all right, you guys are all tag teaming, so get your intros from everybody. And <laughs> Gary Shandling is introducing me, right? Yeah. So, uh, and, and he came out, I'll get your intro in a minute, you know. <laughs> yeah. So right before he went on, he, uh, you, you know, <laughs> let me get your intro. And I, I was, I'm such a fan. I said, uh, uh, I'll just say, uh, uh, I'm the head writer on the Larry Sanders show, and my name is Pat Godwin. <laughs> And he he looked at me, what? (laughs) He goes, you're not going to be that unfunny on stage, too, are you? And I went, I sure hope not. (laughs) But he felt bad about what he said, he told me later, so he watched my whole set. And he came right up to me afterwards. He went, you are a lot funnier on stage than you are off. And he apologized for being a dick. I said, "No, I I was trying to be funny." You know, yeah, you 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 just just, you you intimidated me. I I love everything you do. (laughs) I'm a huge fan. Thank you. (laughs) But but he is that individual. He is that guy. But it surprised me that he was not hanging out with his buddies. He, uh, I don't know why he was so standoffish. That's what I remember is that he was sequestered. And, I mean, heck, Leno was probably bigger at the time as a celebrity, maybe. Right, but those yeah. guys, uh, Seinfeld,
1: Shandling, uh, and Leno, they were—they're all
0: very close. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe that's his process. Well, right, exactly. Uh, you know, you—you you, as you, we talked about that before, the process—you got to let, let guys do what they do. Yep. And I—and I
1: guarantee, as you—you you know this, Seinfeld and Leno knew exactly that Gary needed his time.
0: Yeah. So even those though they're ca-
1: best friends, they're not going to bother him.
0: Those guys were probably Leno and, and, and Jerry Seinfeld. Probably were working more and knew exactly what they were doing. Gary probably probably had to, to look at notes, man. You know
1: what? You're right. I, I, yeah, I exactly. wanted to do new material. He was focused on Larry Sanders, and yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, he was in the middle of that at that time. Right, and I was, of course, the head writer for Larry Sanders. What? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an interesting thing between, you know, we we talk about how we get to hang out with the funniest people on the planet, but isn't there sort of a test when comedians first meet oh, each sure. other that? They do kind of have to make you laugh before you really welcome them oh, yeah. a, a, into your uh, space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if somebody comes up to you and says something like you did to Gary Shandling, that was that you know was putting to him in a way. Like, what are you trying to? What are you saying? What are you doing here? Yeah, especially a neurotic like him, you would go, "Oh, well, I'm not going to like this guy because." <laughs>
0: Well, you, you worked with the, with the great, well, we love him, we tease him, Greg Warren, and you, yeah. you, you worked with him a lot, and you guys helped each other a lot on the road, and you were buddies. I feel so bad to this day, because Greg Warren and I would finally see each other again on the Bob and Tom shows. Greg said, I, I introduced myself to him, hey, I, I like you like on Bob and Tom, show, funny. He goes, oh, you and I work together. I went, oh, was I... Was like, no, you were real quiet. And when you were done, you went back to your room. You didn't hang it out at all. Oh, I was probably going through a breakup. <laughs> no, I thought you hated me. I said, I don't even remember you. <laughs> Craig Warren of all people, you think that something from his act would have I would have stuck around to go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I must have been in one of those moods where I didn't want to see people. I don't know what was going on. You know, I get pretty miserable on the road and I didn't I didn't even realize I worked with Craig Warren. Yeah. That was humiliating.
1: So were you a guy that when you rolled into um uh, a town to work the week at a comedy club. Would you sightsee in that town?
0: No, I would. Uh, I would coffee club sit. Okay, uh, coffee. I go to a Starbucks or or with their around then borders a bookstore and read a lot. Get away from the other comedian in the condo. If I was in a condo, yeah, that kind of thing. And I would just kind of decompress and have coffee and and read. Because I really couldn't play back at the condo. I could play if it was, you know, and I'm, I'm a guy who likes to play a lot and I didn't want to annoy people or, you know, bring out a guitar at the condo. So I would I would skedaddle. I would, uh, there were times when, if I enjoyed the city, um, gee, St. Augustine, any part of Miami or, or even Florida for that matter, I would sightsee and go to museums and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, unless it's San Antonio or something cool like, uh, you know, in South Carolina, uh, Charleston, you know, I've seen every other city and there are they're there are, other, there, there are they all, they all. I've, you know, once you've been to Grand Rapids, you've been. You know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That old, and cliche. I know that that's not even true. But in my mind, <laughs> uh just unless it's a really a, a fun, fun city with something new to offer, I would get a little bit, you know, uh down about it.
1: But the cliche comes from a, a seed of truth: of every town starts to look the same. Yeah, you know, and yeah. you go, well, why am I going to go to there? Their uh, tourism museum—it's going to be the exact
0: same as the other. Yeah. Are you a guy who would go and, and do make sure you saw stuff? In you know,
1: the town? I, I, uh, I do. I, uh, I do. I, I haven't been great at it always, but now I go. Man, I at least, I at least need to go to uh, a cool restaurant or a cool
0: museum. I, I try to do at least one thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I, I, one of the big regrets probably is that I don't think I, I always just missed uh, whoever I was with at the time or my family. So I was, uh, I was a person who, you know, if you ask me, oh, you, have you seen Honolulu? Yes, I've seen the hotel by the airport in Honolulu. You know, I think there are, I could have been a little more aggressive about checking things out and maybe things would have been a little richer and they would have livened you up a little bit, you know? Did you start drinking on the road? Oh yeah. Had you been drinking before that? just binge weekend guy it didn't really get away from me uh, until the until flying and the road i had a tremendous fear of flying that would just accelerate uh, a drinking issue to the point where i had to come in a day early otherwise i couldn't perform i'd have to then recover and uh, you know it takes a day or two to get back into the into the mode and then by two weeks on the road and sometimes i'd be out three weeks that second week i'm doing shots before the show yeah, you know, once you're doing stuff like that, you know, God, maybe I shouldn't be doing this job. My central nervous system's shot. But uh, you're still performing well, you know, because now you're a little looser. And, you know, you're acting. You're not forgetting stuff. And I wasn't sloppy on stage. Until that day, you are. You yeah. Know? And, uh, and that would happen after periods of loss where things would get away from you because then you were self-medicating just to – Kind of get through the day, you know, just to kind of numb yourself. Uh, and uh, if you're in a situation where you're also working, that's just a recipe for disaster. So you weren't having a
1: beer to uh, take the edge off on a flight; you were getting drunk to go on the plane.
0: Oh, I, uh, I knew what airport bars opened and at what time. I knew if it was a six a.m. flight that I had to have a couple of, I had to have three at least little bottles of vodka in a brown paper bag, chugging them in the in the airport bathroom uh, like a wino, you wow. know, just to get on a plane. Yeah, and because uh, the, the 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 fear of flying was that bad, and uh, then I said I can't be doing this anymore, and I got Xanax to fly with, and then you know two months into that little that little disaster, I went wait a minute now this is the problem, you know yeah. now I'm not now I'm not taking two to get on a flight I'm I'm eating eight of these things to get on a flight wow so you know whenever I medicated to to get rid of my fear of flying. Uh, it always turned out horribly. Yeah, never turned out good at all.
1: Were you emulating, um, for lack of a better word, because that sort of has positive connotations, but uh, your father,
0: by doing this, do you think, who was a drinker? Just the opposite. I think I, I never wanted to be like him at all, but I certainly did end up having some of his same qualities. Uh, he was an everyday guy, and I was always like a party with my friends, but when we partied, we ripped it up in, yeah. in, in Pennsylvania. It was on. When I was done with a, a four-hour stint at a club, it was it was an hour of heavy-duty boozing. Gotcha. And then I would pay for it for three days and not think about it at all. But as I got older, it didn't metabolize properly, and I would you know when I found I would have to have a drink in the afternoon just to get by. Then I went, uh oh, yeah, you know things really can get away from you very quickly.
1: Uh, after how many years of road partying would you say did you go? Okay, this this might be something to examine. A little, a little more.
0: You know, you know. it was only a, it was examined by other people quite a bit. Like the girls, the women I was involved with, where they go, you, you can't do. I'd come back off the plane from wherever, and you know, I'd be sloshed. Yeah, what is wrong with you? It's a three o'clock in the afternoon. It's, yeah, I know. you know that kind of a thing, and I would just feel so bad, and that would be depressed over it. You know because it was never really, uh, like uh, something I wanted to do or so. And I never did it every day. It was always, when I did it, it was disastrously, it was disastrous from a health health standpoint and a mental standpoint. And it was fast and furious. Yeah. It it was say it was, it was so much in, in short periods of time and then nothing. But in that short period of time, I could get lazy and rude and, you know, and not be a good person. I'd be cranky in the morning with uh, my loved ones and, uh, you know, the, and I, I can't blame it on the road. I don't think it would have happened uh, if the the road weren't involved. Um, I think if I, I think I was destined to be a somebody who maybe worked from home and was like a writer at home, and or I just recorded at home. The uh, the road lifestyle always. Uh, so you say you do kind of blame the road, or you don't? I
1: do in yeah. a
0: way. I mean, I'm the one who I'm the one who did it to myself and harmed myself. But
1: oh, right, you're taking responsibility. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, that being that road lifestyle certainly, yeah. aided in. Plus, drinking for free while you're working. Um, yeah.
0: Can- you know, and I always kind of kept that in check, except if the owner, like at, uh, there was a legendary guy at Tampa, Bobby, that owned the club who was just could rip it up. And, you know, we'd have three shows in a Saturday. So uh, yeah. he would say something, like, hey, okay, we have one more show left, Pat. How about a little personality? Yeah, a little shot of the personality. And all <laughs> of a sudden you're doing four shots of personality and you're go- your brain is going... Your brain is almost challenging you in a way, like a Bukowski kind of way, like, "Hey, we're still, we're, we're, or weights in the early years, we're right. still good, man. Yeah, yeah, you got this. Yeah, but you, you be right beforehand. You go, do I really got this, and yeah. then All your of a brain you can't spell personality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when your brain ro- r- r- rose to the occasion, you kind of like you, you, you held it as a badge of courage when you're doing. It. See, I must have did nine. You did nine shots before I went. <laughs> what and. Uh, but that, you know, then you wake up on a Sunday going, oh, my God. I suffered more than I think most people. I just, my body was not meant to, even though I'm, I'm Irish. Right. Oh, man. I'm
1: the same way. I cannot. I suffer. And I was legit legitimately diagnosed with a, a thing where my body does not metabolize, metabolize alcohol the way it's supposed to. Yeah. And it stays in my system longer. And I have hangovers that are literally three or four days long. And they're miser Like, they're miserable. Yeah. Where sometimes day two is worse than day one. It's a weird Thing, but I'm like you, I am also a binge drinker, I, not by no means an everyday drinker. In fact, I could go a month. I, I mean, I could go back when I was, you know, drinking more, I could go a month without drinking. Yeah, more. then as soon as I did, it was a 12 pack. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it was ba- just binge bad.
0: You know, I was one of those guys who I never had booze in my house ever because I knew of my family and me. Uh, so I wasn't a guy that had wine with dinner. If we were drinking, you know, I usually was away on the road and it was on and it would be after shows and it would be, it get in the way. And I got so sick, I had to be hospitalized. I mean, I would get shaky, uh, withdrawally sick where I couldn't control my blood pressure rose and I'd be stuck. And the only thing that would unstuck you, unstuck you is that that's even a word is, well, for drunk. Would, would be, would be, would, <laughs> would be a little hair to the dog, which then when you're doing that, you go, uh oh. And when your body actually can't, um, recover yeah and i'd i been there a couple places those usually came after a couple breakups where i just you know took it a little too far took the sadness a little too far
1: years on the road uh different relationships breaking up and um uh the drinking
0: did you ever hit a rock bottom well, i hit a bunch of them okay where i had to be ho- hospitalized it, uh, so physically absolutely Yeah, physically, like walking to the ER, just go to, when you were at home going, geez, the only way I'm going to feel better is if I have something to drink, it'll calm me down a little bit, because I could feel my blood pressure, I could feel being shaky, like I was sick, Uh, and I got got there quickly, I think maybe quicker than most, I think you have to really, really, really drink to get to the the point where you're withdrawally. but for me, it could be like a five or six day kind of after show thing to the point where I'd be feeling shaky and sick. And I felt so uncomfortable like that. That feeling was just so horrible to me that I would march myself. Into a hospital, I would just walk to the ER and tell them exactly what was going on, and they knew exactly how to deal with you. They gave you a benzodiazepine and what's called Jesus. Um, it's, it's a shame I know this. They they call, they call it some sort of bag. It's basically for the homeless to get your fluids back in you. It's a yellow bag. They give you full of nutrients. Okay, and I said, yeah, you're gonna. And I would walk in and just give them my own diagnosis. What you're gonna need is probably an ad event, probably three or four, and that that yellow bag thing. And they go, oh, you've been here before, have you? Yes, I've. yeah. <laughs> and this is how they. This is how they would treat like homeless winos that would walk in off the street. <laughs> and the, the only reason, well, why, you know, yeah, the only reason why these guys are on the street and still still drinking is because of withdrawal. I mean, when you get to that point where you're shaking, your brain, and all the anxiety that you're keep that you're calming um, uh, chemically. It's now tenfold when it's out of your system. If you can imagine uh, an anxiety issue that's already there, you, you treat with alcohol. When the alcohol out of your system, it's now magnified times ten. Yes, exactly. So you're you're left with the brain of, oh, it, it's overwhelming to the point where I need help. Yeah. And there have been times in my life where I've marched myself in and got it, you know? Yeah. Did you start going to...
1: Okay, so was there a specific incident where you went... I just simply cannot touch alcohol. I can't have any more ever again. And if there was, you don't have to
0: well, I you have don't th- have to tell tell me what it is, well, but I have thought that uh, a long time ago where I wanted that to be the case, but then I would, in my just stubborn nature, want to hang out at a wedding and 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 have champagne, and I would safely. yeah, and then I and then you kind of trick yourself, oh. You remember you went to that wedding you only had three champagnes you're fine but you know then i then i then I, you realize you're not fine very quickly and as you get older it ha- you know it would happen you know when you, it happens very quickly getting yeah. sick is almost instant in, in, instantaneous you don't drink anymore no how no, long no. has it been uh jeez it's been a year or so two years okay so yeah. we we'll say 4 months after back do- <laughs> 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 we'll say 4 hours <laughs> i don't know when was lunch <laughs> The the unfortunate thing is that I admire stories of drinkers, and I find... Uh, I find, it, I look at old Richard Harris videos of him on TV shows and uh, and the Hellraisers, uh, the English Hellraisers. Yes. And I find it to be tremendously funny when they tell us, we were in the hotel, we couldn't pay our bill, so we dressed like women and walked out the front door. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm of laughing course. at alcoholism. Ah, that's hilarious. Right, right. And, you know, I've just enjoyed Hellraisers my whole life, and uh, I come from a family of Hellraisers, too. Yeah. My uncle was a Hellraiser, and my dad was whew, a Hellraiser.
1: There's a certain, Romanticism to it, yeah. Of uh, man, oh man, the guys who drank, and you know, if you're a writer, you go off oh, Fitzgerald would uh, yeah. Hemingway back, and oh man, like, and so write drunk edits,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. And so you would. There
0: is, a, there's a romantic notion to it, but there are real consequences. Well, this new Hemingway documentary. If you want to see the consequences of alcohol, yeah, he was a rebel, and you laugh at all, then you look at, then you look at him. Ten years younger uh, than I am right now, and he looks like he's 95 with these sores all over his face, uh, health issues because of alcohol. And he he had two plane crashes, and brain fluids come out of his ears, and he's drinking in the hospital bed. Yeah. And this is in the documentary. And you just look at the. There's nothing romantic about that, right? Or putting a shotgun in your mouth because, of course, in Ketchum, Idaho, where he, where he killed himself because of the the, 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 the false depression and the real depression that, that's there, but magnified due to alcohol. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, it just ruins lives. It ruined my family's life. My dad was a mess uh, because of it. You know, and uh, you know, just just trashed our whole family really. Do you,
1: is, is it a daily thing for you? Do you ever, do you think about alcohol every day?
0: I don't think about it at all. Oh, okay. There's nothing about, it. I don't enjoy the taste. I only ever enjoy the, the effect. There are some guys who, who miss being in bars and the smell. Uh, I don't mind a good dive bar to talk to a fellow comedian, but yeah. I don't miss going to a bar or anything or, or the taste of alcohol or the effect at all. I don't think about it at all. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah. don't. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. I know other people have some sort of compulsion where it's in, you know, they really have to keep a check on it. It's not something, you know, I I know the last couple of years just going to airports is something with one hour of sleep. I remember driving to an airport going, God, the only reason why this is so easy on one hour of sleep is alcohol isn't involved, you know? And then you realize how lucky you are, you know, because I remember dragging myself to an airport on two hours of sleep with alcohol involved and going, oh, with my brain just. So, yep. so when you think when you're doing a really hard job and an hour of sleep and you're flying and you have three flights to get you to Rome and you're sober, you're like, God, this is so much easier. I can do anything like this. Right. You know,
1: it really is so much easier. So
0: much easier.
1: <laughs> I never drank before a show because yeah. I never wanted to um, need it. Yeah, and uh, I. It's also why, and I have, as you know, I have. Uh, a fairly acute anxiety disorder, uh, you know, and um, uh, so I and I never took Xanax or anything like that before a show because right. I want I never wanted to train myself to need anything yeah. before I I hit the stage yeah and you also just and it sounds to me well I know you I I know this is the case you're a consummate professional so even when there were a couple times you said it got out of hand on stage oh yeah. Um, do you remember any of those moments? Were were you repeating material? Were you getting belligerent? Uh,
0: No, I was mortified. I remember not being able to finish, like finish the second half of the song, starting something. Uh, During during a really low period when I went through uh, this last divorce in 2013, I just recall being, you know, just miserable and not having a hard time getting through it. And there was one particular uh, three-show night where I just remember I was doing half songs. And uh, it was still working. But I, in my I just went, oh, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, there are certain things that you're not, you are not Superman. You may think you are in the second show. You got away with it. But now you're you're doing, you can't remember the second verse of the song, but you're still, they're still laughing. (laughs) Well, then you get, get I get off stage pissed. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. That kind of a thing. Just so mad at yourself. Yes. Yeah. Because I I worked with guys that would uh, medicate before shows all different kinds of ways. And, you know, George Carlin had to put himself into rehab when he was in the 70s because he had a little mini wine addiction going because that's how he calmed himself down. Right. I saw Rickles in Vegas uh, down a bottle of wine before he went on stage. I went, Jesus. Yeah. My idol even has to. And there are people that were saying, yeah, when we have two shows, we have to keep him in line. Sometimes he repeats bits. And we're like Don Rickles. You realize that everybody handles that going on stage differently. Exactly. And uh, there's you know, and any, uh, medically it's a slippery slope. It's, it's best just to be nervous and You, right. you, you get over it. Right. But you can't but you can't tell the brain that. Sometimes. I would
1: exactly, and I would never judge anybody for having a drink before going on, or or, or even while they're up there or whatever. And there are times where I've at New Year's Eve shows, sure, or, uh, or even you know the last show of a six show week. I'll take a beer up there with me and yeah. I'll, I'll drink with these fine folks. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I have no problem with that at all. I just knew just... me. I know me. And I didn't want to yeah. train myself because
0: I know I would have. <laughs> and, and then if, if we're still funny, we can get away with all kinds of behavior like that. Yeah. Like, you know, Ron Ron White's hilarious, but we all know that he seriously drinks there up on stage. You know, that's not an act. Yeah. You know, and he's so darn funny and clever and original. You know, people, no one's, you know, saying you can't drink on the job, Ron. That's part of his job. He brings the party to the stage. Right. But it really is a, ooh, it's a rough way to do it. Not everybody can do it. No, no. Yeah, and I would
1: imagine Ron wouldn't recommend everybody try it because... <laughs> It doesn't work for everybody. No, that's I would. I,
0: I would imagine he probably doesn't feel so good the next day. Unless s- some guys are tanks, though. You know exactly. You know, I'm not one of them. Right. I yeah, am no, I'm, I'm yeah. mentally such a child, and you know, I have a carnival going on side in, in my brain. And a lot of times, you know, drinking after shows allowed me to sleep because I have horrible issues with sleep, mm. and uh, and that's also a crutch if that's how you're going to sleep. You know, that's no way to go to sleep. It's best to have that. Doot, doot, in your brain yeah. with a thousand million, but I just wanted the carnival to shut the hell up. Sure, sure. Because <laughs> if you've done two shows, you're just constantly you do a post mortem on your show. I should have did that differently there. Oh, oh, I have an idea for a song here, and and then my then I, that gets turned on. You're like, oh, I want to go to bed. Your brain's buzzing. Not now. Yeah, yeah,
1: yep. Nothing you can do about. It. I mean. I- there are, there, are artificial ways, as you said, to yeah. try to shut it off.
0: But. Well, to this day, now being extremely healthy, except for weight gain after my back surgery, I don't really. I feel sluggish from that. Uh, but I, uh, boy, I, I, I put myself into the bedroom at eight o'clock. But many times, Tom will call me or text me. Typically, call before he goes to bed at the, probably around the same time. And he'll wind me up about an idea. Hey, we have like this morning. Yeah, we have a purple oracle. Maybe you could do a song to to purple people eaters. I don't know like that one, Tom. Uh, But you purple rain. Well, you probably would. uh, You know, we're going back and forth. I'll I'll get I'll laugh. I'll get aggravated. Now I'm laying in the bed with. I got all these song ideas for the next day going. You can get up early and write them in the morning. Right. You don't need to torture yourself now and get up and rewrite. You know, that's so I have never considered. I know that we've always joked about.
1: You and Tom going back and forth on the phone. Oh,
0: well, we go back and forth on the phone.
1: But I've never, essentially what he's doing is he's handing you a baby and going, watch this for me tonight, will you? And then he goes to
0: sleep. Yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> what he does. And, you know, he ends up, uh, and the reason why I get here early, uh, I, I get up and uh, I often have a text ready for me because he he gets up at 2. Uh, My alarm goes off at 4, but I get up at 3.30. I don't like alarms. I'm just crazy. I don't want to hear an alarm. I'm with you. It scares me. I I beat the alarm, uh, you know, uh, once out of the month an alarm will wake me up. Yeah. So, I wake up like this. I just jumped. I was startled. Oh, geez, I didn't work in that Purple People leader thing because I thought it was stupid. Purple's got a new line. Of, what am I going to do with that? How about I? And I want to be doing original songs. I have three ready to go this week. Then why don't we hold on to those for a while and you give me the Purple People Eater song. He, he knows that the parody format works for radio, and I don't agree. I think it should be this, you know, so I... Now, why don't we do something a little bit different? We've already done uh, the monkeys theme, you know? <laughs> There, it, or, and that's the kind of like fun uh, fights that we'll have. And he very often is right. Just trust me, that poop line thing the end is going to get. Tom, we can It's going to get a laugh. <laughs> you, know, that, you know, And I'm I'm really uh, I'm I'm teasing way more than I should because he's also the guy that will will just go. You know, like um, I'll give you an example. Uh, he'll go. Uh, you know, if you did something about a guy enjoying pubic hair in that Leon Redbone voice of yours, <laughs> you know, like uh, you remember you had that nobody speaks English thing. You should have nobody. And I, and I instantly got up off the couch, went to the guitar, and wrote that song that we have on our show, Nobody Has Pubes Anymore, because Tom really had I would never have thought of that in a million years. Yeah. I wrote every piece of that song, but I mean, that's the kind of like thing that he does. Right. And he does right. that every every day. He has something like that. Well, let's get to this. So you, uh,
1: you were on the road. You started guesting. You would come through uh, Indianapolis, and you would be yeah. a guest on the Bob and Tom show, mm-hmm. and you and Tom became friends. Yeah. In fact, you would um, Stayed at his house. Yeah, you would travel together. You went to London to see a reunion of... uh, Of Cream,
0: yeah. May 5th, 2005.
1: Now, was that the London trip where you met Sean Connery?
0: No, that was with um, WMMR. We did uh, a week of live shows at Bill Wyman. He's the bass player for The Stones, was the bass player for The Stones, at his restaurant called Sticky Fingers. So all of our uh, sister stations, four or five of them, we uh, set up shop at Sticky Fingers. In the afternoon when our show would be live at 6 o'clock back home, uh, whatever the time difference is there, we that we were live, but it was in the afternoon, and uh, we 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 went to uh, England to do a week of live shows. Pete Townsend, Brian Ferry, oh. you, you can't believe, you know, uh, the the you just can't believe the the kind of people that we interviewed was amazing, and that it was just so thrilling for us. But the biggest thrill was. We all, all fifteen of us, and it was uh, Rick DeFonso who was uh, he was he was augmenting me. He's the guitar player for uh, Roger Waters, and yep. he was he was performing that year on the Wall concert that you see. That's yeah. that my that's my buddy, uh, and we were off all, all fifteen of us from the show, crew, interns, the five main guys in the show, and our, our female producer, and we um <laughs> we get to the Grosvenor House. Which is a very fancy English hotel, known for the Beatles' last performance before they went to America. And this is why we booked it, because we were all (laughs) Beatle fans. We got to see that banquet room. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we walk in uh, to the Grosvenor house, all of us, with our our luggage, and uh, there's Sean Connery sitting in a chair uh, with a cigar and a brown liquid with ice and a newspaper. And we're all like, oh, Jesus place is swanky. (laughs) And I remember uh, saying to the clerk, uh, I was joking around, this place must be nice. You got Bond in the lobby. eh?" And the guy got, he was not happy. Oh, by the way, don't talk to him. Don't say Bond. (laughs) Do not go near him. Don't interview him. He takes a month off every year. He gets away from his family. The guy was telling us. Sean Connery gets away from his family, his wife, the movie business. And for a month he reads, he smokes... And he socially drinks. I I, knew, I saw him all week. We would get back from the show. And now it's dinner time. We'd have dinner and drink in that hotel bar at the Grosvenor House. Mm-hmm. Sean Connery was in the back, all by himself, with a cigar, <laughs> brown liquid that he, he didn't seem like he was even touching. He was really more into the reading. Yeah. This time it's a book, sometimes a newspaper in the morning. <laughs> and we were told not to talk to him. It was like, mm, it, was, it, was, it was hell. Yeah. <laughs> There's, all of us were just huge James Bond fans, sure. you know? So. Don't interview him for your little show. <laughs> and we were like, oh, I can't believe we can't go over just say hi. <laughs> yeah. So we're all raising hell every night, and he never pays us any mind. We're loud Americans. <laughs> After three or four days of drinking and, and eating too much, I thought um, it'd be a good idea to maybe get a workout in. So uh, there was a gym in the basement of the hotel, tiny little room. They said, "You go down there." And I go down there. Um, this is before our show, so this may have been noon or so. Uh, and I uh, walk down in my gym clothes, and there's Sean Connery on the exercise bike with the paper up. This time he's not drinking or smoking, obviously. <laughs> and he's whirling away with the paper, and he he looks up from the paper, and I nod. He gives me nothing. <laughs> he's annoyed I've walked in. And he goes back where I just see the kind of the top of his head over the newspaper. I'm like, I am so nervous now. Like, do, do I tr- attempt even? No, no, no. Just go about your way. Uh, do you just do your business? And there was a weight bench there, and the weights were on it. And I went over, and I, I just thought, Well, it looks like a man. It looks like a manageable weight. I take the thing off uh, the weight bench. And, oh, it goes right <laughs> on my neck. <laughs> <laughs> Holy Jesus! And we've all been there before. Have you been there before? You've had the weight too much, and sure. you're, so you're, I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to get it down my body, but it's crazy heavy, and it's crushing my neck. And then the, 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 the next moment, the very next moment, uh, Sean Connery lifts the bar up off me with ease. By the way, <laughs> puts it back on the weight bench, and I went. I took a chance. I went. Thank you, Double O Seven. And he goes. He gave it to me. He goes. The name's Bond. James Bond.
1: Unbelievable.
0: And then he said, you know, you may want to pick a, a weight more suitable to your size. <laughs> That's the last thing he said to me then. And he walked back to the exercise bike and went to brought the paper up again. And then I did a little workout. And I never told anybody. I think we had two more days uh, to be there. I never told anybody because I thought I'd get in trouble. Yeah. I wasn't going to tell our lead guy, John DeBella. Hey, by the way, I talked to Sean Connery. You weren't supposed to. You're ruining the whole show. <laughs> You're gonna get us thrown out, so I kept it to myself. But as we were leaving, it's the same scenario we uh, have our bags now, we're leaving to go to the airport, and Sean Connery's in that same exact chair. It's and we're like, God almighty, <laughs> I took a chance. And I, I, as I walked by, it's like a ramp down here, and his chair, his, his seat would have been up here. And as I hit that right moment, I just said to him. Thank you, Mr. Connery, for saving my life. And he looked over, he said, uh, uh, pick a fight with a smaller dumbbell next time. <laughs> and everybody's like, what the? <laughs> I'll tell you on the plane.
1: <laughs> Did he have kind of a smile? when He, he was- had a smile, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pick a fight
0: with a smaller dumbbell next time. As his voice kind of rang as we were walking away. That's wonderful. See, I had many things to share with him. I, my dad, had one line in a movie with him, so I was just dying to have any contact with the man. But I could not believe a person wanted isolation so much from his fame and his family mm-hmm. that he would be that stoic. He honestly, he had, he didn't have anybody around him, no hand. And it was just the oddest thing to be to see James Bond every day, and you couldn't even like engage him in any way.
1: Sure, I mean, but it makes sense. I mean, we do, we have
0: no idea what it must have been like to be that famous. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't and, go anywhere. And apparently the Bond thing was like, he would tell people the hotel, I don't want people, don't ask them to say. It. He gave that to me because I took a chance. Thank you, 007. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he gave me a little tidbit. But apparently, like, he'd be on talk, Sean Connery would be in talk shows, and he was a Scottishman, and they're notoriously frugal. And he apparently didn't make a lot of money on Bond. So when... David Letterman, uh, he tells this story. When Letterman, uh, or it may have been Carson, would interview him, they'd always bring up the Bond thing and have him do some shtick or whatever. Um, and uh, during the breaks, you know, Sean Connery, the first thing he'd say to these guys, "You know, I never made a dime on Bond." <laughs> <laughs> in other words, move on to what I'm doing now.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, he had a real bad taste in his mouth from the Bond movies. <laughs> Because he kind of sold that franchise for them. You know, I mean, he really made that part so iconic. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 And the money that
1: he made for them. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was a wonderful moment.
1: So you, uh, you've you had a few run-ins with celebrities. We've talked about some so far. And um, uh, you must have uh, run into some in
0: L.A. Yeah, there's, a, there's one I've never, ever told the story on any kind. I've never written it down. I was told I could not write it down. Oh. And I'm going to now because I got permission. I just can't use their name. Now, uh, my manager was a woman who was a friend of mine. Uh, who We went out to L.A. together. And she managed a lot of new wave bands and myself in the northeastern Pennsylvania area. And we decided to make a go of it. And we had my songs all demoed, all my acoustic songs. Circle City that we talked about earlier was, was one of them. And I was going to go out and showcase to get a record deal, which I did end up getting. So, um, the very first couple of weeks, uh, uh, Denise and I are in the same apartment, and that soon changed. Uh, but we, at this time, we were off Hollywood Boulevard, about a block off, and uh, we would hang out. At, we was, we found out this, this really cool place was the Rainbow uh, Bar and Grill, which is where Lemmy from Motorhead would hang out. Uh, Lennon, back in his drinking days, would hang out. It's a famous LA cool bar. Okay. And um, there was a, there was a there was a person I would see on the soap opera. Uh, it was Ray Liotta from Goodfellas. I would see this guy in the soap. I wasn't a soap fan, but Denise was. Pre-Goodfellas. Uh, pre Pre-Goodfellas. Pre-something okay. wild. Pre-any oh, sure. yeah, movies. Yeah. Pre-anything. Yeah. He um, uh, he was on Another World, and uh, Denise watched Another World all the time, and I kind of walked through, and I noticed him because he had bad skin, and the cameras on soap operas were brutal. I remember having acne at the time myself. and I remember thinking, oh, gosh, I hope I don't get something like that. You can see this person. You can see their acne scars. That's This is what I thought. Yeah. So we're at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. And Ray Liotta walks in, and uh, I noticed his face is a lot. in In regular light, it's not as harsh. That this is what I, I this is what I'm thinking. And, and then he walks right next to me to get a drink, and my first instinct is to go, "Hey, aren't you on Another World?" And he goes, "Yeah, I'm on. A, I just left that. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to give it a shot in the movies. I just hated that whole process." Huh. We started to talk about the movie about his about movies and acting. Yeah, he said he he went to, for theater to the University of Miami, and I went. You know, uh, there was a woman in high school, uh, Valerie Climo, who was like four, uh, three, four years ahead of me, who went to the University of Miami for theater. He dropped, his face just gets ash. Valerie Climo, she's the reason why I am acting. What? She's very pretty, and she was in line for, for, to sign up for theater, introduction to theater and acting. Mm-hmm. And I just thought she was hot. So I got in line to meet Valerie Climo, <laughs> the girl I went to high school with. Wow. She was excellent. Still is. She's still involved in theater and i went you got to be kidding me this is a small world yeah she went to my high school she was Valerie Climo she never went out with me but she's the reason why i got into theater and uh, she she was in every class with me we're still friends to this day and this <laughs> now, ray liotta pre any kind of movie is just wonderful Yeah. but I, he's really kind of how do i say amped up a little bit kind of like the ray liotta you meet at the end of the movie goodfellas <laughs> oh, yeah. when he's looking up at the helicopters there's
1: no helicopter Karen <laughs>
0: <laughs> that yeah. is the Ray Layouta I, I met. And uh, he uh, he says to me, is that your girlfriend? To my, about my manager who's over here. She's dying to meet him. She can't believe that we're like face-to-face talking about it. What a small world. You know Valerie Clemo. And he goes, is that, is that your girlfriend? I said, no, that's my manager. He goes, do you mind if I talk to her? I said, not at all. They hit it off. Immediately, right? and uh, She's a fan of his she, from, from another, another world. world. Yeah, they hit it off immediately. And uh, she goes, hey, you don't mind if I go home with right, this guy? I go, uh, geez, don't no, have fun. I'll see you back at the apartment. Yeah. And uh, an hour or two later, <laughs> I get a phone call. Uh, Pat, come pick me up. Here's the address. This guy is nuts. He's, he's walking around in underwear. He's got boxes of powders and potent potables. He is whacked out of his mind. I went, I'll be right there. Uh-huh. So... So she gives me the address. I drive, and I don't know how far I had to drive to rescue her from Ray Liotta. And, uh, and I knock on the door. She's ready to go and, like, runs into the car and tells me uh, about just how it scared her. He didn't do anything of stupid. Of course, of course. He was just uh, impaired. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, she said he was walking around in his underwear, and she thought that was a little weird. She <laughs> begged him to put his pants back on. And uh, I drove her back, and I, I never thought of it at all. Until I'm in the movie theaters and something wild. Somebody, somebody told me it was great. It is. It's a wonderful movie. And the nut in that movie is Ray Liotta. I'm like, that's the guy. And then, of course, when Goodfellas comes out, yeah. I'm beside myself. I, I would tell people that. No, it didn't happen. You see this guy? The guy playing Henry Hill. I rescued a woman from Henry Hill. <laughs> Yeah, but apparently he is really uh, he, he's he's come a long way because now my manager is friends with his his new wife, and uh, they uh, they hang out and he has no memory of that particular thing happening and she does not bring it up. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That is funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> to be that talented and crazy in this business. Yes. Yeah. Bobby Slayton had told me that when he did the HBO uh, thing with uh, Ray, he was still pretty wild. Ray played uh, Sinatra, right? And uh, Bobby Slayton was jo- Joey Bishop.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good flick.
0: It is. Yeah. And yeah, I was telling him I Ray Liotta. So he worked Ray Liotta. He goes, Yeah, guy was nuts. <laughs> yeah. he, he is that nuts. <laughs> and I told him that story. He goes, Yeah, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> you sound just like Bobby Slayton. I love Bobby Slayton.
1: I do too, the pitbull of comedy. Bobby
0: Slayton went on a bunch of like, uh, we would do our show from Jamaica every year when I was on an MMR, similar to the way Bob and Tom would go to the Bahamas. We would go to Jamaica. Yeah. And we brought Bobby every year.
1: Oh, Bobby was the
0: wildest one of all, of all of us. There is no out hanging out with with anybody. Bobby is the real deal.
1: I remember being in Vegas one time, and <laughs> there was a for a while there was a Hooters casino.
0: Yeah, he had a, he had a residency there, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. And so I walked by. I go, Bobby Slayton's in this room, and and I could hear him through the doors. And uh, I was on my way to like a restaurant to meet somebody, so I couldn't uh, go watch the show. But I peeked in, and there must have been eight people in there. I don't know why, <laughs> but it, there was only. It, And I remember going, this is, these people, and they weren't really laughing. Don't they know this is Bobby Slate?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bobby, when he sees me, he only has one story that he always wants to, he wants to tell. And I like look at him and I always wave him off because he, he, we went to Jamaica and this is an embarrassing story. I've never done uh, LSD or mushrooms. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I don't smoke pot. I haven't smoked pot since I was 19. I just don't like being high like that. It was just, I don't like being stuck somewhere like that. Um, <laughs> Bobby said, hey, you got to try mushroom tea. I said, hey, Bobby, you know, I, I got gotcha. you. We'll do this. So what, what Jamaican, some Jamaicans would do is they would sell them bad, poisonous mushroom stuff. And you wouldn't get sick until you got on the ship. So they just gave you nothing. And sometimes these moistens uh, the mushrooms would be uh, would give you really uh, horrible uh, food poisoning. Oh, um, and it was a common thing. It's it's called something. They don't give you, sell you mushrooms, and I went uh, my wife at the time Kim and, we, <laughs> and Bobby and his wife. We uh, decided not Kim and I have never done this before. So we're like, yeah. oh my God! And we don't have a show that night. We will not have a show the next day. We're off. And should we get back on the ship? And we are all vomity sick in the brig hospital, the hospital, not the brig, oh, the hospital right, of the ship. Right. And Bobby thought, oh my God, oh, <laughs> they, they poisoned his pet. So every time I see him, every time I see him, so my mom and my stepfather, Mel, uh, they meet Bobby. I think they've flown out to LA and they're, uh, Vegas. And Bobby's in Vegas at that Hooters thing and I'm at the I'm at the M Gym Grand with Catch a Rising Star. And uh we're gonna hook up later when we see Bobby. And Bobby starts off, Oh Pat, I gotta tell you this story. And I go, But Bobby Mel's a cop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they poison us, Pat.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was a tank, that guy. He was one of the guys we talk about who was a tank. Yeah. 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 He is still around. Yeah. He's still around. He's, he, there's no one that can tell a joke like Bobby. He just dominates a room. Yep. If you've never seen a presence like his, he's, he is full of himself in a very, very good way. I don't know how to describe a person like Bobby. I, yeah, he does not rub me the wrong way. He's always funny. He tells a joke backstage like nobody's business. (laughs) He is on. He is, he's full of energy and uh, he loves that uh, almost killing me story.
1: Now that Kim that you were with on the cruise, your wife, yeah. was that the same Kim as uh, who had the mansions in Miami? No, no,
0: that was uh, pre Miami Kim. That was a uh, lawyer Kim from uh, Philadelphia.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. okay.
0: That was an eight month <laughs> marriage that went awry. But you did end up marrying her. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh... then Kim, Kim and I from Miami—we never ended up marrying, but she's my longest relationship. How
1: long were you guys together?
0: We were together seven years. Yeah.
1: Wow.
0: Part of the whole luxury scene down there with the uh, that wonderful house, and uh, her her parents were just very generous and 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 just incredibly successful beyond your wildest imagination.
1: So how'd you screw that
0: up? <laughs> You know, uh, I I think that uh, we would have made it if I if this business weren't weren't so difficult on the finances. And I really couldn't uh, keep her in in the style she was accustomed to. And I think I just burned it out. I I, I remember intentionally going, I'm never going to get out of this. The uh, her father had uh, said to me, you know, you know, you really I can give you a nightclub. You you could run a nightclub on Miami Beach. You'd get out of the business and you make a ton of money. You're smart guy. I'll show you the ropes. Yeah. And I wanted to be a comedian. And I, yeah. and I wasn't going to quit. I'm not a quitter. And I certainly was not going to be any nightclub owner. I don't have any business acumen skills like that at all. So after seven years of someone believing in you and you being on the road and her flying out to see me and us having such high bills because we lived high in the hog, our apartment was almost $3,000 a month, with which month with made it made it impossible for me to stay in L.A. Yeah, I had one sitcom thing with Fox that failed. And she just saw just, you know, she just... You know, and she just saw me being miserable by being away so much. The last week that we were together was still a wonderful week. It's just that she pulled the plug. And then when she did, I mean, it it was not a relief, it was just disaster. Yeah. Uh, After a while, it became a relief, and I realized, oh, I was never getting out of that alive. Okay. It was just, yeah. There was no way that I was going to. You ever, you talked to her at all? Uh, She saw a picture of Jimmy on Facebook and reached out and says, Your boy is adorable. And she'd also (laughs) seen a picture of my uh, adopted daughter, who would have put me having sex with someone else right around the time we were still together. So she had a few questions for me. Oh, I see see your daughter Avery. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, and you had to go, no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, 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 no. But she was still mad, (laughs) and we, and she has four kids now. She goes, exactly, when did you have this, Avery? And I went, hold on, hold on. We don't even go out anymore. (laughs) I adopted her.
1: Oh. Did you end up moving out of that $3,000 apartment and then staying, did you move somewhere or stay with friends? Yeah, well,
0: the the week before 9-11, she dumped me. And uh, I was, uh, she'd got her stuff, which is her parents' stuff, gorgeous furniture. rough September. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh my god and the twin towers. Yes, yeah, her and I were like twins. You know, I was so I didn't see the full picture. I was all about me even. I, re, I remember Shame on you. I, No, no, no I, I'm joking. That was a, I, I, that was horrible for everybody. But yeah, she had dumped me and I um uh, I remember going with Mike Stankwitz, my buddy, and staying at his house down in San San Pedro. And I had a and I was I couldn't sleep. I even went to the hospital not drinking and said said in the emergency room at Cedar Sinai. I said, my girlfriend dumped me. I haven't been asleep for six days. I can't, what am I going to do? I said, well, you're going to take a seat over there, and we're going to get to you when we can. You know, When they triage you, <laughs> the guy with the broken leg is going to beat the guy with the broken heart. <laughs> but I honestly couldn't sleep. Yeah. And uh, Mike was sort of babysitting me. And, and my first gig um, in a while, because I'd been doing this thing with Craig Shoemaker called Comedy.com. It was a beta test show for internet comedy and uh, I'd wiped out my whole schedule, and then they got rid of all of us, you know, our show. And I was stuck with, okay, i got to rebuild this, you know, road warrior career. And my first show back, I was flying the day of September 11th at 6 a.m., which is 9 o'clock New York time. Oh, wow. And our plane uh, took off, and then uh, the pilot goes, "Uh, we're going to have to go back to LAX. We have uh, uh, plane issues. We're like, plane issues. We didn't even get to – it's 10 minutes up in the air. It's it's 10 minutes. It's 6.10, which is 9.10 when the first plane hit. So we had no clue what was going on. Our plane turns around and then we all get, you know, we all go out into the uh, the airport and everyone was staring up at the TV at CNN. Oh, man. And, uh, right around the, I guess we got back in there after, after that second plane hit. So I'm in an airport in LA and my plane had turned around. Yeah. A week after getting dumped from the love of my life at that time. Yeah. And uh, gosh, it was just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how life had just gotten so fragile for everybody. Wow. You know, but me and the world. And, Incredible. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But having your plane turn around. Yeah. And I kept my ticket, you know, and I gave it to my mom. And my mom had used it. Uh, she was uh, really involved with the Catholic Church. And she's done a bunch of emotional speeches around that time where she was like a deacon. She would get up and do a sermon. Mm-hmm. And she used to use that ticket. You know, my son was in the air that day. Wow. I gave her my uh, my flight to uh, the ticket.
1: I remember uh, driving through New York City September 9th, 2001. Oh. I was working for Rawlings and I was on the road for them. And I, I was driving. And I remember... Looking at those towers, and uh, I had already been at the top of them a few years before, uh, you know, when I was taking a trip to New York City and stuff. And uh, Yeah, I I got to see them, uh, I mean, that's kind of a weird way to say that, but two days before. Oh, my uh, gosh. Just
0: unbelievably eerie, to say the least. Yeah, and my my family was all around there. I had a brother in Brooklyn. He was in Manhattan that day, and my brother-in-law had a meeting with someone that worked in the uh, the, twi- the the world trade the, the the twin towers but he had a it was a like a, a breakfast meeting so they were actually blocks away in in was seeing the seeing the guy's building go down. Oh, my brother-in-law goodness. my Good brother-in-law is, yeah
1: so your world uh, turned upside down absolutely by, yeah, uh, yeah the breakup and then the world turned
0: upside down yeah that same week uh, yeah
1: you had the comfort of uh mike and you were staying with him and his wife or he's
0: always patched me up he helps me yeah. move he opens for me. He makes me laugh. Yeah. He we have great stories together. He comes from Erie, Pennsylvania, and he, he's he's Polish and very proud of it. And uh, we he knew me and I knew him when he was a baby comedian and I was a singer songwriter. He used to you know come out to shows and and hang out before I even did comedy. Cool. So we've known each other for a long time. So he and his wife Donna uh, they they would take me in in a heartbeat now if things went uh, bad. You know they're just that they're just those kind of people. Have you ever done anything to repay them or? Uh, uh, geez, I you know I make sure that uh, Mike works as much as possible. Yeah, but uh, she is still mad at me for a certain. Uh, uh, I was trying to be nice, and uh, <laughs> I was they were gone. She worked, and and Mike had another gig, and I was left in their house for a week to babysit. And they have a couple dogs, you know. And uh, there there were some di- dishes left in the sink. Now I'm not a guy who does dishes, but darn it, I could do something to help her out around here. Yeah. So she had a wonderful old skillet. I thought it was filthy, <laughs> cast iron skillet. <laughs> I clean that sucker to a shine. I, she's gonna be so happy when she gets home scrubbing it. With yeah, yeah, soap she's and, gonna be home and <laughs> at five o'clock, you know, and Mike will be back in a week, you know. Soap, I got the bristle, I got the, I got the wool, the, the whatever you call that thing out. It's shiny, it's all hell. And uh, I could not wait for her to come home and see how I've cleaned up her kitchen. And all I hear is no, no. <laughs> Apparently, I had cleaned her cast iron skillet. That uh, she was a wonderful chef and a cook that you'd never clean. This thing's been in her family. This is like Nana's skillet. It had Nana's lard on it from
1: 1929. For all your heart is in totally
0: the right place. You're like, look at this filthy skillet. I'm gonna clean it for. It was given to her by her grandmother. She, she. I've never seen anybody matter, and I, inexplicably, I, right. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't know. know. You should have known, you idiot. Well, but Mike I, is too nice to you.
1: I used a Brillo pad. Isn't that? I
0: I had it shiny. <laughs> Uh, I had I had no clue people did that because I was I, I don't know if you know this but I'm notoriously there's nothing in my now that I have a son it's all different but I you know if you would go to my place I never had anything at, at home at all yeah um, the one time I I had some food items when I was younger I'll tell you this story this is a pretty good one going uh, through a breakup and I come out, I come I'm, I'm, people people can always take so much of me and uh, I, I I am alone. And my uh, girlfriend is out of this apartment of ours so she had some things after a week or two all the items pretty much get pretty much are eaten up by at this point or thrown away you know there's, I'm looking there's no eggs. there's chocolate milk there's uh, oh there's vodka in the uh, so I uh, I put a little vodka in mix it with the chocolate milk and I see potatoes right I go well, there's no butter I can mash them. So I put, I put three potatoes on the uh, on the pot. And uh, of a, this old stove we had, and there are cookbooks up in the shelf of this old, sto- uh, the shelf of this old stove, and uh, that 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 that'll come into play in just a little bit. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: And I put the uh, I have a little more of my vodka, uh, my vodka. And- <laughs> I have a little more vodka, and chocolate milk. I'm I'm feeling a little I'm feeling tired now. I'm feeling okay. Yeah. I'm still hungry. I'll wait for those potatoes to boil and I'll just eat the damn things. you know, when you're, you're you know. <laughs> I'll smash them up. There's no butter. I'm just gonna eat them. <laughs> So I fall asleep and I wake up to firemen pulling me out of the apartment complex <laughs> out into the February weather and the whole apartment complex is out there in the nightgowns and they're looking at me. The smoke is billowing out my apartment. What had happened in the two hours was that the water boiled down and then that metal started to shake and ironically, a cookbook fell in to the pot and it caught on fire so <laughs> So, so everyone, you can you can imagine, everyone's like, what? they're all looking at me, and I'm like, I'm trying to explain. I don't know what happened. I was boiling potatoes, and I fell asleep. And the whole apartment complex had to be like, you ever see? It was my place. Was I? I it was. I could have died in the next half hour. If yeah, we yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Pulled me out of a drunken slumber. What happened? I don't know. Ask Absolute Chocolate over there. No, Chodka. <laughs>